Hello, I'm Earl Fontenelle, and you're listening to the Schwepp, the secret history of Western esotericism podcast, online at schwepp.net. And today we're, we have the pleasure of welcoming back to the Schwepp after several years break, Professor Wouter Hanegraaf from the University of Amsterdam to talk to us about specifically the first tractate in the Corpus Hermeticum, the Poimandres. Wouter, thank you very much for coming back on the Schwepp. It's great to be back. Looking forward to this. So, the Poimandres is a very interesting text with a huge Nachleben, obviously, the divine Pimander, and so on and so forth. And it starts off the collection we know as the Corpus Hermeticum. And unlike many of the tractates in the Corpus, it has a lot of parts. It isn't just a, a little simple story arc. It has cosmology, it has a hymn, it has a vision, all kinds of interesting stuff going on. And um, you've written and thought about this work a lot, and I know you're writing something about it even as we speak. Uh, so, perfect person to talk to about the Poimandres. Now, the Poimandres is the first treatise of the Corpus Hermeticum, uh, maybe the most famous, uh, very important. Now, in the most dominant scholarly perspective, something goes wrong, in my view, immediately at the beginning with respect to the question of what is the structure of this text? And here, the dominant perspective, which has been taken over by almost everybody, was that by André-Jean Festusier, who says that this is a text which is basically, well, the center of the text is a myth, a myth which can be subdivided in, an, in cosmogonic parts, an anthropological part, and an eschatological part. And that is what the text, all, the text is all about, according to him. It is preceded by a kind of frame narrative. So it is presented as, an, um, as a vision. And so the first sections of the, um, of the Primandries give this frame narrative of how Hermes, well, an anonymous visionary who we have good reason to assume is actually Hermes, gets confronted with the vision of, an, uh, of Poimandries, uh, the divine noose, who gives him a revelation. Then we get into this long part about cosmogony, anthropology, and eschatology, and then, uh, then it finishes with the mission of Hermes and with a prayer. So according to to Fechigere, all that is really important is this mythological account. I think that's completely wrong, really fundamentally wrong. What we actually see in the Poimandres is something very different. What you see is um, text that in many ways is like an apocalypse, uh, which you find in Jewish and Christian uh, literature. And apocalypsis means literally a revelation. Uh, so for the moment, forget about uh, end of time scenarios, etc. This is about a revelation to a visionary. That's, that's what the text is all about. So what we read in the Poimandries is the account of a um, visionary revelation. And at, when the vision ends, then the visionary is sent out into the world to preach the, the good news to the people, and there's a final prayer. But basically, the whole narrative is visionary. That's the first thing. Hmm. In my view, contrary again to Fechigere, the most important things that happen in many ways in the text are right at the beginning, in the first seven sections. And then after that, you get a long account about how the world came into existence, how the universal man, the anthropos, came into existence, and what happened afterwards. Now, let me break it down what happens. First of all, Hermes, I call him Hermes because in, um, you know, in another uh, text of, uh, of the Corpus Hermeticum, he is identified as Hermes. So I assume that this is Hermes, even though his name is not mentioned in the, 
in the poem Andrews. Uh, he says, one day when I had come to reflect on the things that truly are, and my mind was soaring high while my senses were restrained, as happens to someone overwhelmed by sleep from too much food or from physical exhaustion, an enormous being of immeasurable dimension seemed to appear to me and call my name. He said to me, what do you want to hear and see and learn to understand by your news? And that last word is important because I think central to the poemandries and maybe central to the entire hermetic literature is this concept of news. Maybe the most central concept in the, in the entire literature of the, of the hermetica. And it causes enormous problems of translation because uh, most uh, standards translation translated as either as mind or as intellect. And so when we as general readers read these English or French and French translations, so on, then we say, oh, this is about the mind, about the intellect. And we know what that is because that's mental and uh, that's about intellectual thinking, uh, rationality, philosophy, and so on. But actually the news as understood in the hermetic literature is something different. It is an, a kind of faculty of perception it's two things. First thing, it is a faculty of perception that allows us to perceive things that go beyond reason, that go uh, outside, that are actually not knowable by the normal intellect or the normal mind, which go beyond them. The anoeton, the not noetic, so to speak. Yeah. And secondly, it is not only our faculty of perceiving that reality, it is also that reality itself. So the noose is both ontological and epistemological. It is a reality, an ultimate divine reality, and it is the capacity of understanding that reality. If I could add a third thing, it's yeah. the, in many of the tractates, including the the first one, it is God. The, 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 the Sometimes called the making noose, sometimes called the first God. Yeah. This is noose, or identifies himself as noose from time to time. Yeah, I would make a footnote of that. Please do. Uh, because there are a few uh, passages in the, in the Poimenders which indicate that he is not the highest God. No. There's uh, other... There is something something above him. I think that uh, there is something above him. There is the the, the Enneat, and the may, maybe there's even something beyond that, and that's, an, that's another story. Okay. Um, so he is not literally God. He is the God as he presents himself to the human mind. He is, and Poimenders literally describes himself as your God. I am, I'm the God for you, um, as you can understand it. So there is something, some, something beyond the news. Right. At least that's my interpretation. Now, what happens then? So he says, okay, what do you want to learn? Now, then uh, Hermes asks two questions. He says, I want to know about the things that really are, and I want to know God. Those are the two questions. And then what happens, it's not the case that Poimandris then sort of sits down and say, okay, I'll explain to you uh, God is so-and-so and the world or the things that really are and this and that, etc. He doesn't philosophize. He uh, shows him a vision in the vision, or actually two visions. After Hermes asks to know what is really true, what really exists, um, what happens is that Poimandris changes his appearance, the text says, and uh, manifests himself as a universal light, an uh, immeasurable light. And Hermes uh, immediately, uh, spontaneously falls in love, so to speak, with that light. It's, uh, it's lovable, it's wonderful, it's beautiful. So that's the first thing. So what really is, is light. It's a universal light, and that is the light of the noose. That's the true reality. And that light itself, like I said earlier, is the manifestation of something even higher, but that goes beyond the point of uh, So 
That is the true reality, light, universal light. And then the question, then there's the second question, what is God? And then something, in my view, extraordinary happens. And I'm happy to say that I, I think that almost nobody had ever seen it. And I think there's something very, very important there. Then at one point, um, first, Poimandris explains to Hermes that he is that light. He, Poimandris, is that light. He, um, he also says that, that basically you yourself, Hermes, are also part of that light. Your noose is equivalent to the noose of, uh, noose of divinity. There's no difference between them. And then he says to Hermes, well then, know the light and get acquainted with it. He uses the words, uh, again, the, the noose words. Uh, the, uh, the problem is that he uses verbs that have no direct uh, English translation because you would have to say something like uh, noeticize, which is not an English word. Yeah. And so all uh, English translations say, well, know or understand. But it's more than knowing and understanding. It is noetic understanding, mm. which is something different, which is something higher. So you would have to say noeticize. So noeticize the light, then, he says. And he uses, uses those words specifically. And then what happens? And I think that's, uh, that's a fantastic and important moment. Then Parmenides looks straight into the eyes of Hermes, and Hermes looks straight back, and they look into his other's eyes for a long time. What I think it means is that uh, Hermes realizes that there is no distinction between the subject and the object, between the observer and that is what is being observed. He is light, he's looking at light, and that means he is in a certain way looking into his own eyes. There is no distinction anymore between the ultimate divine reality of the noose and himself. He himself is noose. He himself is divine. So he's not some kind of lower creature. He's actually, his real essence is noetic light. And there's no difference between him and noose, which is a quite a radical thing uh, to think because it means that if you think about it, we, are, we tend to think in dualistic terms. We think that we are subjects that uh, observe the world outside. But what Hermes realizes, I think, in that moment is that there is no such distinction. He gets a radical answer to the question both of what truly is, ta-omta, the things that really are, and to what is God. God is himself, and he himself is God. And it's all light. And that's the only thing that really exists. It's very radical. So I think this moment of gazing into the eyes of Poimandris is incredibly important. And important also is that there are no words. And nothing is being said. There's a direct realization that happens. Mm. Furthermore, and that's another aspect, there is reference to the Logos. Yeah. Uh, I will come to it in a moment. And there has been an enormous amount of discussion about the Logos, of course, which of course an enormously loaded concept, which has many meanings and many translations, and it's hard to translate it all. But Hermes says that it is that in you which sees and hears is the logos. That is his definition. And uh, my approach is here to think, you know, forget for a moment what other philosophers have said about the logos, but listen to what Spormandry says it means. For him, it means our faculty that in you which sees and hears. That's the logos. Interesting. Which means that at the moment that... Hermes looks into the eyes of Poimandris and has this, has this ultimate realization that doesn't happen through the logos, that happens directly through the noose. It's a silent moment. It is not visual. It is not auditory. It goes beyond both. Now, okay, what happens then? Then Poimandris starts to explain basically how the things that are have come into existence, 
or maybe I should be more precise and say how the world that we see, the phenomenal world, has emerged from the things that really are. And the things that really are is only the news. The world, the world that we see is a phenomenal reality that is not ultimately real. And that goes for the whole material reality, for everything that we take to be real. It's not really real, but it appears real to us. Now, and then you get a famous myth. It's very complicated, but let me try to, to summarize it. First of all, Hermes see, sees this enormous expanse of light, the only reality of, of the news. Then there's the appearance of a darkness that appears. It's never said where it comes from, but we are supposed to understand it. It comes from the light uh, somehow, but, it's, uh, but it is different from the light. You know, it appears this threatening, chaotic darkness, which is twirling and smoking and making a chaotic noise and sound and so on, and it's there. So now there is a separation between the light and the darkness. Then this dark reality that he sees emits a cry. And there's reason to think, most translations say it's a voice of fire. But Mahé, you know, the great French scholar, says, no, it's actually the voice of light. It's not fire, it's light. And that's actually what the, what the manuscripts say. Uh, so it is a voice of light that comes out of the darkness. And it looks like that light, the light of the news, is sort of trapped and in distress, so to speak, in this dark matter. And in response to that cry, the light world sends down the logos. Uh, as a kind of manifestation of itself, which sort of goes down and there's a kind of meeting of the two. And as a result of that, the dark chaos is put into some kind of order uh, according to the four elements. And you get a kind of first rudimentary ordering of the chaos. And that happens as a response of, as a result of the response of the logos to the cry of the light from the darkness. So that's the first thing that happens. So there's a first measure of order that has happened. Then the second thing that happens is that the noose, the divine noose, which is bisexual or uh, androgen, you should say, yeah. it is often described as the father, but it's really not a father. It's both father and mother, and it is described explicitly as androgen. So it's, mm -hmm. it can bring everything forth by itself. It doesn't need some partners. Arenothelosone. Exactly. That's what it says. So I describe it as androgen. You might also may, maybe say, say it's hermaphrodite. Okay, let's, let's call it androgen. Mm. So this androgen deity can bring forth anything at once. It has already brought forth this darkness, this dark, dark stuff, this dark chaotic matter. Now it, it creates a second entity, which is the demiurge. And the demiurge then, uh, well, gets to work on the chaos as demiurges do, it starts to mold it and to fashion it into a shape and it and it's puts it under the hegemony of, of the planetary system. So you see the creation of the of the seven planets, the Heimarmene, well the rule of fate. So now you have the dark matter and you have the have the cosmic spheres, which are created by the by the demiurge. Okay, that's the second phase. Then there's the third phase, and that is the creation of the of the great human, the Anthropos. And again, you have the problem of gendered language because it has often been described as the great man, but it is a human, it is not man, it is not male, it's male and female, and again, it's androgen. So I call it the great human. But it's complicated because in what what's going to happen now, in a moment, we will see that the chaotic matter uh, manifests itself as female and the great human uh, manifests itself as predominantly male, even though both are uh, androgen. So, so it's complex. Okay. 
Now, the human is basically a kind of favorite child of the news, of the, of, of the divine. So God himself, the divine news, falls in love with his own child, with the Anthropos. And um, he loves him and he wants to give him to give him the full power over everything that has emerged. So he puts him in charge. Then the human, well, thinks great. Um, he looks down at the Demiurge and he sees what the Demiurge has made. And now he wants to make something too. And he asks permission of the father, of his, of his father, of the noose. And the noose gives him permission. That's important. Because this, uh, what happens next, is, has often been described as the fall of man into sin. But it is God, or the noose, which gives him permission uh, explicitly. So he doesn't transgress any law. Yeah. So you can go down and uh, create something. Go ahead. So, okay, he goes ahead. He uh, enters the sphere of the Demiurge. Uh, he learns its crafts. And uh, planetary spheres, which are entities, receive him, welcome him with love. They love him. They are, everybody's, uh, you know, very much impressed by the human. Uh, everybody loves him. God himself and the planetary spheres, everybody loves him. Uh, because he's so beautiful and so great. And then once he's learned everything from the Demiurge, he bends down further and he bends through the planet, the lowest planetary sphere, and he looks down on Earth. And um, what he sees is nature, physics, which is down there. And nature uh, looks up at him and she smiles. And she's gentle female here. She smiles and she falls in love with him. He's beautiful. He is also extremely powerful. He has all the powers of, uh, of divinity and of the demiurge. So he's great. Uh, so she smiles with love up to him. Then, and now it gets really interesting with respect to uh, you know, intellectual biases. Uh, I've been looking at all the major you know, analysis of the Poimandri's decades and decades of scholarship. And everybody makes what happens next into the fall of man. And then there is a debate about what happens because, okay, nature smiles, smiles towards the man or the human, I should say. The human uh, falls in love with her. Now, there is an ambiguity there. Is it the case that he falls in love with his own reflection reflected in the waters of the nature as a kind of narcissistic kind of love of himself? Or does he fall in love with nature herself? Now, there has been endless debate about it, and uh, I think it's unresolved because it's a, it's a question of how you yeah, reconstruct the text, and precisely this piece of text is heavily corrupted. Everybody uh, agrees about it. So we do not really know what it's, what it's meant to say. But the general picture is clear enough. He looks down, he responds to the love of nature, and he comes down and they make love, and they become lovers. That's what it says, literally. They become lovers. It's extremely interesting and, well, embarrassing and shocking sometimes if you read the scholarship, especially the earlier scholarship before the Second World War. I mean, what you see is again and again, it starts with Reichenstein already, that this is interpreted as a seduction scene. So you have this pure human who is above uh, all this kind of sexual uh, seduction. But um, he comes down, uh, he bends down over his own reflection in the waters of nature and then when he's close enough she grabs him she basically she grabs him she takes him and she throw and she draws she draws him down under the surface so to speak mm. and i think what you see here is very clearly the reflection of van de Schekle, uh, imaginaries of the um, satanic feminine of a demonic femininity that will draw down the pure masculine into sexuality and all that 
And I think that is what I project on it. But that's, that's not really what happens. What happens is that the human falls in love. Like she falls in love with him, they fall in love. Mm. He comes down, they become lovers. There is no fall there. There is no sin. There is no seduction. It is a love scene. So I think this is a love story. It's beautiful. It's positive, And everybody loves it. Uh, the noose is looking down on that and he thinks, oh, my children are embracing one another in love. That is how it should be. There is no fall. Nothing. Okay, then, okay, they make love, and what do they produce out of that love? Seven androgen great humans, kind of primal human entities. They are, again, androgen, and uh, this is described uh, explicitly as something great, again, something wonderful, as a great miracle, as a great wonder. Not a fall, again. It's just wonderful. Everything is wonderful that happens. So then these seven uh, primal humans are made of the union of matter and noose. That's what they are. And the one, what makes them wondrous is the fact that, that these beings uh, unite heaven and earth, if you will, uh, noose and matter. And so they bring the spiritual or the noetic reality into matter, and they make matter into something beautiful in this way. They live for a whole season, and then something happens which is done by God, not by the human. God intervenes and yeah, decides to split them up into male and female. And again, that's done by God, not by the human. He splits them up. So you get actually 14 entities now, seven male, seven female. And he says, well, multiply and spread over the world, etc." So, and there are biblical references here, you know, uh, about, about multiplication by sex and birth and so on. Now, from that moment on, you see the emergence of humanity as we know it, which happens by, uh, by birth and generation. And, and the bodies that are being born in that way are mortal. So for the first time, time, now you see mortality coming into the picture. Now, there is a very lapidary statement which says that God says, or the news says, grow and keep growing, multiply and keep multiplying, all you have, who have been fashioned and made. And may he who has nous recognize that he is immortal and that eros is the cause of death. And may he know all that is. So there's the order or the, yeah, the command to multiply. God is not against sex. No, it's actually great because that is what they are supposed to do. They have to multiply. Uh, but then I think what happens then is that humans have a choice. They can either keep their consciousness uh, connected to their noetic essence where they come from because that is what they're supposed to do they're, they're supposed to live in matter and live in the body while staying connected to the noose and that is that is the ideal but they can also um, make the wrong choice and that is they can get get obsessed by the attractions of matter and of the body and if they do that and they forget their noetic origin then things go wrong and then they get then they get swallowed up by mortality, so to speak, and they end up thinking that only what they see through their mortal senses is real. And they forget what is ultimately real, ta'onta, the news. So that is what it's about. Now, this statement, eros is the cause of death, or love is the cause of death, has been hugely overinterpreted, in my view, under the influence, again, of biblical notions of sin, fall into sin. 
the story of Adam and Eve has very often been interpreted, you know, theologically or kind of instinctively as connected to sex, right? So when Adam and Eve fall into sin, they eat the apple. It's a metaphor for sexuality. And I think that a lot of scholars who have been reading, or most scholars who have been reading this text, have seen something like that. So you get love, you get sex, and they fall. And that is the cause of death. And death is something horrible that happens as a uh, punishment for, for sex, mm. basically. That's not what's going on here, in my view. No. That's, an other, that's yet another Christian theological bias. What's actually happening here is that um, it's a question of what do you focus your attention on? Do you focus all your attention on mortality, on mortal bodies which are born and die? Or do you uh, live in a bodily environment while keeping connected to the noetic world? Uh, so you know that the mortal bodies, in, including your own mortal body, are not the ultimate reality. Well, if you forget that, I think, the, I think the message is, then, well, you know, you have no way of getting back to the things that truly are. And you will enter a cycle of reincarnations and uh, uh, you will get born and reborn in new physical bodies. And uh, you will be living in a kind of, in modern terms, in a disenchanted world where all you see is mortality, mortal bodies, mortal realities, and that's it. That's what it's really, uh, really all about. So to summarize, there is no fall into sin. There is no uh, negative evaluation of sexuality. There is no dualistic of uh, noose against matter. None of that. What you see here is, um, I would say, a basically psychological point that's being made here. Uh, the whole question is, what do you focus your attention on? On the noose or only on the body? And you have, you have to keep the balance between both. There's an element here also, which I go into in the book that I'm writing, but I'll just summarize it briefly. There has been a very frequent assumption that the body is the problem. And uh, again, that, that, that assumption is influenced by Gnostic models, like the body and matter are the problem, right? And we have to transcend that. I think that when you read the text carefully, what you see is something different. It's not the body that's a problem. Uh, the problem is the passions. The psychological passions are passionate attraction by negative desires, desire for sex, a desire for power, and desire for wealth, especially those three. And that is an, that's a topic that is, uh, that is widespread. So I think what happens is when there is an other treatise, Corpus Medicum 4, about um, where the metaphor is used of a vessel, uh, the, the vessel of noose, fill, the filter yeah. of noose. And there's yet another text which says that when the soul enters the body, it enters a kind of vessel. It enters in a kind of polluted vessel of the body. And uh, this body is polluted with the negative passionate desires. That is what poisons the soul and causes it to lose sight of the noose. So this is very much going from a, a close reading of the, the Poimandres, just to, to flag this for people who might think this is all in the Poimandres explicitly. We've gone from uh, a yes, very close no, reading is, of, to, of right. Poimandres to other hermetic tractates. And you could also add to this analysis yes. supporting what you're saying, tractate 13, where there's actually a list of uh, 12 yes. vices, things like pleonexia and um, stuff like this, like lust for sex, lust for uh, wealth, all that kind of stuff, which are given to us by the uh, 12 astrological houses that we need to purify ourselves of these vices yes. before we can 
um, sort of escape from Heimar Mene. So yeah, that's exactly right. So yeah. now you're you've you've yep. silently gone from just reading the Poimandres to reading the Poimandres as part of an intellectual system. So maybe yep. maybe all we have time for now would be, um, but I think it would be essential to do this is talk about the role you think the Poimandres, this text and this well visionary account plays in a larger system way of Hermes style. Mm. Right. Well, there has been a lot of talk in recent decades about the way of Hermes. This actually comes from Jamblichus, not from the Hermetica, this notion of the way of Hermes. Uh, but most modern scholars, including myself, think that, yes, you have to think about the Hermetica as part of a way of Hermes or path of Hermes, if you will. And I am making the argument that uh, the Hermetica have to be seen as a spiritual path. And I think the term spirituality is actually important here because the Hermetica have been seen uh, traditionally as an hermetic philosophy. If you say it's an hermetic philosophy, then you you expect philosophical theories, etc. And those theories are there. But the literature is not focused on uh, philosophy for philosophy's sake. Philosophical theories and systems, etc. are only important to the hermetica yeah, to give a kind of theoretical underpinning and explanation for a spiritual path of development of the, of the inner person. How do you move from a state in which you are completely obsessed by material realities, which take up all your consciousness, so to speak, how do you find your way back to a consciousness in which you you have the connection with the news again, as you're supposed to have? And so the path of Hermes, as I see it, so if you move beyond our point, the first treatise of the Corpus Hermeticum, and you, and you embrace the rest of the Hermetic treatises, and including some other Hermetic texts as well, then you can see that we are dealing with well, with a path, an hermetic path, a spiritual path, I would say, and the goal of that path is to uh, break the power of the senses, of the exclusive uh, material and bodily senses over our minds, so that we are, we will uh, be able again to perceive our essential connection to those. And what you see happening here, I think, in the hermetic literature is that the Poimandris describes something like an, an original... Uh, illumination or enlightenment event, like it describes how somebody who's looking for what is really true gets this revelation, this apocalypsis by uh, by Poimandris, and is enlightened basically. But only once this enlightenment has come, and now he knows where he should go, he still has a long way to go. It's not like he is enlightened and now he's there. He has to cultivate it and he has to uh, make it part of his life. And I think what you see in other treatises is the outlines of a path of development that goes through stages. You have to learn the theory, the philosophical theories. You have to really have to have to learn philosophy, definitely, about what is really true and what is not, and so on. You have to do meditational practices, and there are very clear references to that. So right at the beginning already of the Poimandris, you have to meditate. And nowadays, we know under the influence of the work of uh, Pierre Hadot, in the, uh, especially, was emphasized that ancient philosophy was a way of life. It was not just armchair philosophy. It was something that you did as well. Mm. It was a way of life. And that's, that goes for the Hermetica as well. So these people were studying theories. They were doing meditational techniques. But I think that they went far beyond the kind of standard meditational techniques that you see in the Stoa and other, uh, other Greek traditions. Somehow, in my view, they had... They had had to discover pretty powerful the techniques 
for alterations of consciousness, for seeing things that we usually don't see with our normal senses. How exactly they did it, what kind of techniques, uh, we are largely in the dark about it. But the descriptions show that you can see how these people go through stages in, in changing their consciousness and being aware of realities that they first didn't perceive and now they perceive them. Uh, kind of a final uh, stage in that uh, the, the developments, uh, you find it in another text that we won't be speaking about today, but that is Corpus Hematicum 13, uh, which is about rebirth. And then there's an even further text, uh, the Octoet and the Enneat, which is about an ascent to the ultimate spheres of the eighth and the ninth. But what I think, think that you see in both of these texts are the description of powerful psychological techniques for changing one's consciousness and getting back in touch, so to speak, with the noetic world. And that is what it's really all about. Well, Wouter, that is a beautifully designed valedictory farewell statement. Stay very esoteric over there in Amsterdam. Okay, I'll do that. Say it to you.